Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We began last week this series on the Sermon on the Mount, this lengthy message that Jesus preached very early in His ministry, Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's preserved for us so that we could see it, and so we're going to spend some time looking at the Sermon of the Mount over the next number of weeks. And we began our study last week by talking about Jesus beginning his message by inviting us into happiness and blessing and what that looks like. Uh, We're going to continue it today by looking at chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. But before we look at those verses, I want to just ask you all a question, and that question is this. How many of you enjoy school. You enjoyed school. School was good for you. It was fun for you. There's a few hands that confidently went up, the teacher's pets of the crowd, obviously. I know the answer, yes, yes, me. Um, I understand. There are some in the group who like school. Um, And for some of you who like school, you have liked it that way from the very beginning. Very early on in your life, you enjoyed school. Um, I got to confess, I was not that way. I mean, I enjoyed school, but I enjoyed really one subject in school, and that was recess. That was the one that I went for. That was what I dressed for. The whole day was oriented around that early in elementary school. And I think part of the reason for that was that I wasn't a very good student. I struggled with the school part of school. Um, It was actually all the way until my third grade year before I really could read. Um, and so it was a, a challenge early on for me in school. But, but after my mom sat down and started reading with me at night and we, we got to a spot where I could tell the difference between a D and a B, um, and I, that really does a lot for your reading skill, uh, when I got past that point and I began to be able to, to, to read a little better, um, I began to get better at school. And, and I began to learn the school game, and I, I got really good at school. Um, all the way through high school, I made pretty good grades um, into college, Um, And I remember when I graduated high school, my sister had graduated college the year prior. And so she came home for my high school graduation, and she'd been in the real world now for a year. And my parents thought this was a great opportunity to extend some advice from one generation to the next. And they said, Debbie, do you have any advice to share with your brother? And she said, stay in school as long as possible. And I sought to live into that. And so I have way more school than I ever wanted. But here's the thing. When you think about school, uh, for, for me and maybe for you, school became a game. It became a competition. It became a situation where you had to learn enough information and retain it for long enough to pass the test. And so you weren't ever really being equipped for much, uh, though my teachers would beg the contrary, and, and I, certainly I have a benefit from the sum total of it all, but largely I would learn things to get through the test. And we have learned that response in our schooling, and sadly, many of us have brought that same idea to the church and to our spiritual life, where we feel like the purpose of our spiritual life is to just get enough education of theology so that we can pass the theology test. We think that the primary emphasis of our spiritual life is in our minds, and so we just want to learn what we can so that we can pass the theology test and then move on. And yet one of the things that strikes me as I look at the scriptures and as I read the gospels and as we've been reading uh, the gospel of Matthew in particular, one thing that stands out to me is that Jesus did not come simply to educate us, but to activate us. He did not come simply to educate us, but to activate us. He doesn't just want to make us smarter. He doesn't 
want us just to pass a theology test. Theology is important. He wants us to know who he is. He wants to have a relationship with us. All of that is true. But Jesus came for more than that, not simply to educate us, but also to activate us and to involve us in his purposes. And we see very early on in Jesus' ministry as he begins to preach this Sermon on the Mount, after this initial call to blessing, Jesus then begins to lay out an argument for how we need to be activated in our spiritual lives, how we need to get involved in investing our lives in ministry, because that is who he created us to be. And so we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 16, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 11. The first 10 verses or so of Matthew 5 are the beginning of this message where he gives these beatitudes, these blessings. He says, happy are those who, and he lists a variety of of things. And then when you get down to verse 11, he continues his message, really transitioning from the introduction to the body of his message. And this is what he says. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, in these few verses, we see Jesus activating his followers. We see him pointing us in the direction of making an impact in the world around us. And what he is doing is he's describing his followers' relationship with the world. And he does so really by mentioning two primary things, and that's how we're going to organize our study this morning is by these two things, really two questions that we might have that he answers about our connection and interaction with the world. The first question that I think is asked implicitly in the text is, what can we expect from the world? What can we expect from the world? As a follower of Christ, what can we expect from the world? Now, he begins letting us know that really back in verse 10, the last of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, where we've begun today, is really, he's just expanding on that same idea. And he begins again, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus, right at the beginning of this message, right early in his ministry, is telling his followers that what they can expect from the world is persecution. Now, does that strike you as odd? I mean, that he would begin there, that he would say this early on. That he, I mean, keep in mind, the verse I read earlier from chapter 4 of Matthew, people were flocking to him. He, he was popular at this point. And yet Jesus goes out of his way in this early message to let everybody know who's following him that persecution is what they can expect from the world. Now, 
Why would he do such a thing? It seems like an odd location for that in his message. And I was trying to think of what in our world and our culture might we compare this to. And so, the, I don't know the weird way that my mind works. I, I thought about uh, prescription drug commercials. You know, prescription drug commercials where they'll show like, you know, somebody chasing a butterfly in a field and it's just beautiful. And they'll talk about, hey, here is this medication and, and this medication will save your life. It will remove your headaches. It will cure your bowels. It will do whatever it is promising. Um, it will go through and offer all of these things. And that's the first half of that commercial. But then what happens in the second half of that commercial? This drug could also kill you. Meanwhile, they're still chasing the butterfly, right? Like that's supposed to make it all okay for us. Um, and, and so the question is, you know, it, that happens in prescription drug commercials uh, because somebody in legal has got together with somebody in marketing and said, hey, we can't just tell people this will make their life perfect because we have a few lab rats or we have a few people, a few situations. We have to go ahead and tell them the potential side effects. It is very rare that that's going to happen, but we have to include it in the commercial. So the question is, is that what happened with Jesus here? You know, Matthew, was he not just a tax collector? Was he also a tax attorney? Did he take Jesus aside and said, hey, Jesus, guess what? You cannot just tell people that there's a kingdom awaiting them. You have to also tell them that there is some trouble that is coming because we could get sued if you start telling people one thing and the other thing happens. I mean, is it possible that legal got a hold of Jesus and that's why he includes this early on in his message? Well, I don't think that's at all what happens here because I don't think what Jesus is saying is that in a few random isolated cases, people might experiencing some opposition to their faith. I think what Jesus was saying was the world that has rejected me will also reject those who follow me. Jesus knew what was coming for him. He knew that the religious leaders would, would, would hate him and they would eventually nail him to a cross and crucify him. And he knew that there was struggle that was coming. He knew that he was going to be reviled and people were going to say awful things to him, that they were going to insult him and put a crown of thorns on his head and put a sign above him mockingly calling him the king of the Jews. Jesus knew that they were going to gamble for his clothing he knew that they were going to spit in his direction. And Jesus knew that the same world that was to reject him would also reject them. And so Jesus comes out very early on in his preaching and he offers a full disclosure, not for an experience that some may have, but for the expected experience of all who follow Christ. What can we expect from the world? We can expect persecution. We can expect rejection. We can expect insult. That's what Jesus says. And it wasn't just something Jesus said once. It's something that he wanted to make sure we got. That's why under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says over in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 29, he explains why this happens. He says, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. In other words, the world exists of followers of Christ and those who are not following Christ, those who are born only of the flesh and those who are born of the Spirit, and those two sides are going to be at odds with one another. And those who follow Christ, those who are born of the Spirit, will be persecuted by those who are born of the flesh. That's just the expected normal role that is going on. And Jesus wanted to make sure we knew that that was what was coming. John MacArthur says this of the passage. He says, 
We do the Lord no honor in those to whom we witness no benefit by hiding or minimizing the cost of following him. There was a cost that was going to be associated with following Christ, and Jesus doesn't hide it. He mentions it right up front. And we need to remember it as well. And Jesus didn't just say this, and it didn't just play out in the epistles as some kind of Christian intramurals where people debated ideas, but this is something that was experienced by the disciples. They experienced this reality. Take Judas aside for a moment, the disciples were imprisoned. They were crucified. They were flogged. They were beheaded. They experienced real opposition. And Jesus wanted them to be ready for that. That was the experience of the initial followers of Christ. It was the experience of the church. As you look at the history of the church and the the martyrs and the persecution that has been around the world, and it's even the dominant experience of Christians in the world today. You know, if we think about our lives, if I were to ask you how many of you have experienced some form of persecution, some would have a story, some would understand what we're talking about, but others would say, well, I don't know that that's me. I don't know that I've experienced that. And we're we're tempted at times to think that we are normal and everybody else is the outlier. But when you look at the world, the world's a big place, and there are real persecution that's happening to followers of Christ around the world today. Got an email just this week talking about some of the the actions of ISIS around the world right now. We're familiar with that because of the United States' connection to this this fight around the world. But what are the experience of Christians in areas where ISIS has influence? it's, It's really rough. I mean, you think about bombings in churches on Palm Sunday in Egypt. You think about little girls being being burned alive. You think about as many as 66% of the Syrian church is destroyed or has had to flee for their lives. Same thing is true in Iraq, but the number there is like 82% of the church in Iraq is impacted in that way. Friends, it, it is normal for there to be persecution in the church. And Jesus wanted us to know that that was what was coming. He, he, he wanted to let us know up front. It wasn't because legal told him he had to. It's because as our loving Savior, he wanted us to be ready. He wanted us to know that, that it was coming, to, to know that it was down the road. And he let them know early on, and it's been preserved for us so that we know also. What can we expect from the world? Persecution. Now, when I, when I say that, sometimes we live in this, this bubble of America, and sometimes every time any little thing goes wrong, we, we just are, are, are offended. I, I, again, I said this to you guys last week. I watch, watch a lot of NBA basketball. One of the things that we get upset about is when people flop. You know, like somebody, you just, you just touch them, and they act like they've been knocked, you know, 18 miles. Um, sometimes as followers of Christ, we, we flop at any kind of opposition, right, in our culture oh my word, I can't believe that the world would treat us this way. I can't believe that this privilege that we've had for a long time might be going away. Friends, Jesus told us that persecution is what we are to expect. Now, that's what we can expect from the world. But the second thing I think we need to see, and this is so important, is what can the world expect from us? What can the world expect from us? See, Jesus doesn't just tell us what to expect from the world, but he wants us to know the expectation he has for us as we interact with this world. We're to respond in a certain way. The world may persecute us, but we are not to persecute the world. We're not even to prosecute the world. God's got that whole judgment thing taken care of himself. We are called 
though, to have an impact in the world. And we're called to respond inside of the world in which we live in a couple of ways. How are we called to respond? Well, Jesus makes that clear in this passage. He says here in this this passage, the, the first thing that we see is that we're called to respond to the world by rejoicing. We're called to respond to the world by rejoicing. What a, what a great thing. He, he mentions it early on. He says that we are, are blessed when we are persecuted. He says that we are to rejoice and to be glad when we are persecuted. Now, how is it that a Christian can rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution? I mean, that, that seems like a very difficult thing. And what does it even look like to rejoice in the midst of persecution? Well, we saw last week that throughout the opening of his message, he is orienting us to kingdom standard time. He wants us to be thinking towards the future and in the future and in our reality of our identity in Christ, that that is how we can rejoice when hard times hit, when we find ourselves meek or poor in spirit, that we can orient our clocks forward and therefore rejoice in the present. But what does that actually look like? I came across the story of John Chrysostom, fourth century man this week that I I think helps show what it looks like to rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution. Says John Chrysostom, a, a godly leader in the fourth century church, preached so strongly against sin that he offended the unscrupulous empress as well as many church officials. When summoned before the emperor Arcadius, Chrysostom was threatened with banishment if he did not cease his uncompromising preaching. His response was this, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. So Arcadius responded then and said, then I will slay you. He says, nay, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Arcadius spoke again, your treasures then will be confiscated. To which John replied, sire, that cannot be either. My treasure is in heaven where none can break through and steal. He says, then I will drive you from man and you will have no friends left. That was the final desperate warning of Arcadius. He says, that you cannot do either, John said. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Chrysostom was indeed banished, first to Armenia and then farther away to Piteus on the Black Sea, to which he never arrived because he died on the way. But neither his banishment nor his death disproved or diminished his claims. The things that he valued most highly, not even an emperor could take from him. Friends, there is an ability that God has given us and an appropriateness for us to respond to persecution with rejoicing. Now, how do we do that? What was John tapping into, John Chrysostom? What was he tapping into as he was rejoicing? Well, Jesus tells us a couple of things he's tapping into. The first thing he's tapping into as he is rejoicing is the future. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Followers of Christ have a reward that is great in heaven. Now, words like great and small, those words are relative terms, right? Depending on who is using those words depends on 
the, the real meaning of it. I mean, to my son, my 10-year-old son, $20 is a great amount of money because it's more than he's got. $20 is party time. But to me, $20 doesn't seem that much because it barely will buy pizza for lunch, right? And I like pizza. I'm not saying it's not valuable, but it's just not as great, right? But when you think about who is saying this, it is Jesus who is saying great is a reward. Now, let me ask you, how much does Jesus have? All of it. He has everything. Every knee will bow before him. The worlds were created in his power. And Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, when he was on the earth, wanted us to know that there is great reward ahead for those who follow him. What does that mean? I can't even begin to describe it to you other than to say that I'm going to take Jesus' word for it. It's great. We can rejoice now because we have a knowledge that there is great reward ahead for those who follow Christ, reward that, that won't rust or be destroyed. And so we can rejoice even in the midst of persecution. But not only does he remind them of what's ahead, but he also reminds them of what's behind. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. But he continues, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a rejoicing that is possible because there's a a recognition when we are persecuted that we're on the right road. The followers of God from the beginning have been persecuted. And Jesus wants us to know that when we find ourselves being persecuted, we're on the right road because those who have followed Christ have been persecuted from the start. I've shared this story with you before, but I once went to a retreat center, um, and part of the directions to the retreat center involved, you know, call us when you get to the stop sign and you turn onto the gravel road because you're going to drive an hour on the gravel road before you get here. Now, that instruction was very helpful for me. Because had they not told me that, when I got 30 minutes into that journey down the gravel road, I would have assumed I was on the wrong road. And I'm so thankful that Jesus tells us and reminds us of the the prophets of the past because they were persecuted. When we are persecuted for our faith or when brothers and sisters in Christ are persecuted for their faith around the world, we can recognize that that is not God's judgment against them. That means they're on the right path. They're on the right road. Because that's the way the followers of God have been treated from the start. Jesus wants us to know that we can rejoice and be glad because of our future and because of our past. And incidentally, friends, this is why we can with confidence share Christ even with somebody who would receive great persecution by believing in him. You ever shared Christ with a Muslim or a Muslim from North Africa? And you think about what they're giving up if they trust in Christ. They might lose their family. They might lose their life. They will lose their vocation. And yet it's still worth it to offer them Christ. Why? Because the reward is great in following Christ. Friends, what can the world expect from us? The world can expect a rejoicing people. But not only can the world expect a rejoicing people, but Jesus goes on to say that the world can expect a people who are visible and impactful. A people who are visible and impactful. You know, when we think about the the church and opposition and persecution happening in the church, there are a number of responses that we might expect. And one of the responses we might expect to a persecuted church is a church that retreats and hides, an invisible church. 
Think about the disciples when Jesus was crucified and they thought that his body lay in the tomb. And even for the days right after that, where did they go? They went into a room probably without windows and they locked the door. We might think one response to persecution in the church is to hide, to become invisible. And yet what Jesus does in the remainder of the passage that we see here today is he encourages the church to not be invisible, but to be visible. Not to be just private, but to go public. One of the things the world can expect, even a world that persecutes us, one of the things the world should expect from Christians is a group of people who are visible and who are impactful. We see that in the illustrations that he uses in verses 13 through 16. The first illustration is that of of being salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's talking there about our impact in the culture. You know, salt is something that, though it may be small, it has a great influence. It has a great impact. If you have food that has some salt in it, you know it, right? You can taste it. If, if you were in a culture where there weren't preservatives like we have today and you were going to try to preserve something, you would add salt to it to preserve its decay. It had an impact. What Jesus was, was saying when he calls them the salt of the earth, he said, you will be an impactful people. You are a people who are going to make a difference. And the difference that the people of God are to make is, is one that they will make just simply by our identity as we go public with our faith. In other words, it's in the chemical makeup of salt to be salty. It's in the spiritual makeup of Christians to be impactful. That's the way that we have been recreated in Christ. So much so, Jesus says that for those that, that uh, you know, for some they'll be used to season food, but for those that they've lost that ability, it might be cast out and trampled underfoot. Now, when we read that in the passage, does that not sound a little like people are losing their salvation? It sounds a little bit like that to me when I read it at first blush, but I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about here. I don't think that's the meaning of that passage at all. I think what he was saying was salt can't help but have an impact. See, in the first century, salt was not pure. It was you know, it had some impurities in it, and over time it would be degraded. Now, when it was at its most active source, it was used to season food and to preserve things, but as it would begin to degrade over time, that same salt would be tossed out on the front patio of houses, and it would harden the soil and prevent things from growing there. It was first century Roundup. It was first century concrete, trampled underfoot and used for that purpose. It was scattered along roads to make them more travelable. It was placed on roofs to prevent them from leaking, to make the roofs hard. I think what Jesus was saying was, he said, you know, your lives are designed to have an impact where you are. And not only that, but he he goes on with this light of the world thing. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It's the idea that light is intended to be visible. It's intended to be shining. See, a visible and an impactful people, that's who we are. That's who we were created to be. You don't take a lamp and 
light up a drawer with it and close it. You put it on a table so it lights up the room. There's an intention of that for going from pub, private to public, that which is invisible becoming visible. The, the church is to have an impact to respond to the culture by being visible and impactful. That's the idea of, of these, these things. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this of this idea. He says, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. It's a weighty statement. I want to read it one more time. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. We are called to take our private faith public. We are created to be visible and impactful in our community. Now, what are some of the ways that that happens? Well, one of the ways that that happens is by being salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt was something that was used to slow decay of food. It was something that made food more savory, but it also was something that slowed decay. And I think that part of what Jesus is getting at as he calls us the salt of the earth is he's saying our presence in a culture slows moral decay. By the values that we hold, by the way that we follow Christ, not just with what we know in our head, but what we are activated to in our lives, has a positive impact on the culture around us. There are values that are held up that help the church have a positive influence on its culture. Think about some of the examples of that in history. Churches and Christians were some of the first to lead in hospitals, for instance, because they value people. Some of the leading edge folks as it relates to care for widows and orphans because everybody mattered. They were, there's a belief that people are created in the image of God and therefore in, inherently valuable. Christians with that value embrace that and, and take action with that and, and have a transformative effect, have a slow the decay inside of a culture. Christians have the opportunity to go public with our faith and have an impact in that way. And I think about what does that look like, not just historically, but what does that look like for us? I mean, here, here we are, we're, we're a church, we're in a city. How is God using Wildwood to be salt in our community? and salt around the world. Well, our belief that people are created in the image of God and that they all matter has moved us as a church to be involved in various things. Things like Eden Clinic, founded by people here at Wildwood. And many of you are a part of that. Our, some, some of our adult fellowship groups on Sunday morning gathered together supplies that they put together and create these little layout packages that they can hand off to somebody who's in a crisis in their pregnancy. We're trying to decide what to do next and where to go. We get to be a part of as a church being visible and having an impact by sharing that gift with them and reminding them our belief that they are created in the image of God and that they matter and their child that they're carrying is created in the image of God and matters. We're able to reach out and provide love and care. One of the ways that we're a part of this, a ministry like Young Lives, you know, Kat Sullivan Russell is, is, is headed into ministry with Young Lives, a branch of Young Life Ministry here at, uh, in, in our community. I'm reaching out to teen moms 
and mentoring them and caring for them. And while what has been a part of the past of helping them go to camp, it's a, it's a part of just adding a little savoriness to our, to our culture, preserving it, slowing the decay. Something like the care portal. While it is just now becoming a part of this thing called the care portal where needs of those in the foster care system can be lifted up and church, both individuals as well as uh, small groups can step in and find out those needs and, and be able to step in and meet them. Just be a little salt in our culture. Why? Because they were created in the image of God and we believe that they matter. It's an opportunity for us to be the salt of the earth. It's not just here locally, it's around the world. This summer, we've got a team that's going in June to Latvia to participate in an orphan camp there. Pastor Bruce is going to be leading that team with his wife, Janet. Think about just the the opportunity. Why are we going there? We're going there to just be a little salt to that culture, to care for those children based on following Christ and his righteousness. We're going to send a team in July down in Nicaragua to partner with One by One, our high school students. We're going to be heading down there to share the love of Christ with them and to help care for some of those kids in need. Just a little salt that we're adding out of the shaker. Think about some of the other opportunities with food and shelter for friends. And we've got some of our, our folks here, some of you here are volunteer with food and shelter. And you, you go and once a month on Friday, uh, coming up a week from Friday or this Friday. Again, what is this? Is this Friday or a week from Friday? Two weeks. Not this Friday, but the next Friday. Second Friday of the month. Uh, we've got a team that goes and serves that meal. What is this little salt shaker? These people in our community, they matter us. We've got 50 people involved in a, in a partnership over at Kennedy Elementary School, providing classroom support, providing mentoring of students. Why? Because they matter. Just a little salt out of the shaker. Friends, we are called to be an impactful people. We are the salt of the earth. The values that we have and the knowledge we have, God intends to activate us have an influence in our community. Now, when I go through all of those things, there may be some of you who are like, man, I, I didn't even know we were doing some of those things. How do I get involved in that? You know, we'd love to get you that information. We're going to post later on today on the city some of this links to some of these opportunities. But also, if you are not like an electronic type person like that, or you want immediate feedback, take the little tear out panel in your bulletin today and put your information on it and then just write salty. Turn it in at the, at the Welcome Center and we'll, we'll get it to you this week. We have the opportunity to be the salt of the earth. That's what we are created in Christ to be. Not only that, but we're created to be light, to shine out, not just to slow down moral decay, but to shine out in our world. We're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, in the, in the ancient culture, the cities were on hills. And when you would travel from city to city, there would be no lights, no street lights, no headlights. And so it was scary to go from city to city. And you can imagine if you were walking in the dark and you looked up on the hill and you saw a light shining out from a city, it would be a welcome sight in the darkness. So we too are to be a welcome sight to the world in how we offer hope and life. And not only do we do those things by what we do, but also by what we say as we're able to shine light and truth and point people to Christ. One of the things I'm most excited about in our involvement with Kennedy Elementary School is the opportunity as we get to know these kids and involve them in things like Camp in the City, they get to learn about Christ. We've seen a number of them place their faith and their trust in Christ as a result of that. We get to be salty, but we also get to shine. It's part of what we were created to do. Our response to the world is to be rejoicing to be visible, and to be impactful. 
Now, I want to end by asking you this, just a simple question. That question is this. Has your faith gone public? Has your faith gone public or is it still private? Is your faith visible or is it still invisible? And I don't mean to those that are sitting in this room, we would say, well, yeah, your faith is visible. You're here today. You're preaching to the choir, Pastor. I, I don't mean that. I'm talking about where we, where we live, our neighbors. Do they, is our faith visible to them? Is our, is our faith visible to those that we go to school with? Is it visible to those who are around us? And the way that that becomes visible is by us being activated by what we hear and going and serving the culture around us and shining light to that culture. Has your faith gone public? You know, one of the ways that that happens is just by, by serving somebody. Somebody you might otherwise avoid, have you taken an opportunity to step out and serve them? Somebody who has a lot of challenges that you might not otherwise pray for, have you stopped to pray for them? Somebody who, who has a need, have you stopped to help meet it? Friends, is your faith gone public or is it still private? Here, here's what I want to just offer you this challenge. This week, do one thing to take your faith public. And by that, I don't mean just like, hey, get the Lord's Gym t-shirt at Mardell's and maybe a Nick Thews for the back of your car. You can do that if you want to. That's fine. But I'm, I'm saying something beyond that, something beyond that. Do something that the world might see your good works and have the opportunity to glorify your Father in heaven. Serve someone this week. Take your faith public. And here's what I want you to do. Let me know about it. Let me know about it. Again, I'll, I'll post something on the city. It'll be on our website. Um, you can call the church office. You can send me an email. Mark Robinson at wildwoodchurch.org is my email address. Let me know this week. I'm serious. This is not, sometimes, you know, people say things just to say them. I mean this. I want to know. I hope, I hope I get overcome with phone calls, text messages, emails, et cetera, this week. I want to know how we are going public with our faith this week. And next week, I'll share some of those stories. Because we are created in Christ. Though persecuted by the world, we respond by being visible and impactful and rejoicing. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to trust you and to walk with you. Pray that you would help us, Father, to be a people that follows you this week with our lives. And Father, that we would see your light shine through us to the world. Father, that those who don't know you might come to know you. And the world that would otherwise persecute us, might be saved by the same grace that we have been saved by. Father, uh, we pray that you would work, and we just trust you with that now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.